Amen. You can remain standing for the reading of God's word from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter the life enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it always goes out and accomplishes your purposes and never returns to you empty. We pray that that would be so this morning. I uh, pray that you would teach us from your word, uh, that you would show us things we've never seen, uh, good things, things we can find hope in, and that we would trust you uh, in that and look to Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, now that I'm a parent, uh, twice over, I spend a lot of time thinking about God as father um, and about uh, sons and daughters and, and Jesus as uh, God's son. And um, I think maybe most of all, why in the world Jesus says in this passage and in its parallels in Mark and Luke that we need to become like children. Because the more I'm around my kids, the more that I realize I want to be with them, but I don't really want to be like them. Uh, I would much rather be able to feed myself, um, to uh, clothe myself, to keep myself safe uh, and clean, to be able to communicate, uh, to eat what I want, to read what I want, watch what I want. The list is really endless, I, I feel like. Um, but Jesus seems to have a very high view of childlikeness. And so this morning we'll ask why. In other words, we'll try to answer the question, why should I be like a child? We're going to look at it in three parts. So first, uh, the humility of a child. Second, the hell of fire. And third, help from heaven. So here's a little context for our passage. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, uh, the structure of the story is basically the same. 
uh, it's just this. There's, there's Galilee, there's the confession of Peter, and then there is Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus' earthly ministry of teaching and preaching and healing, and then Peter's confession that Jesus is Lord, uh, and then Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and to his death and resurrection there. So Galilee, confession, Jerusalem. Uh, Peter's confession then is really the hinge that the story of Jesus uh, turns on here in Matthew. And that happens in chapter 16. And it is followed by Jesus being very frank about what is about to happen to him. Uh, So he says this, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, the disciples uh, who often come across as sort of bumbling uh, and confused in the Gospels uh, definitely uh, do so here. They do not seem to really believe what Jesus says. A suffering, dying Messiah uh, was not what they thought that they needed, and it certainly wasn't what they wanted. And so they chose to uh, sort of ignore it. At best, what Jesus had said was very inconvenient for them. And so they put it out of their minds. And that is why, in the shadow of Jesus' impending trials, the disciples are asking themselves, who is is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is going to have the king's ear? Who's going to have the power and the influence? Perhaps even, what will we wear? What sort of mansion will we live in when we get there? And these are really the seeds of betrayal, aren't they? Not the betrayal of Judas, uh, but the betrayal of the other 11 to leave Jesus, uh, to leave him alone in, in his time of greatest need. This is the attitude that culminates in the scene of Peter huddled around a coal fire in the cold saying, no, I, I don't know him. I don't know that man from Galilee. And uh, He does it three times and eventually he hears the cock crow and he weeps. The seeds of that are right here. Jesus is going to die. He's going to be executed. And the disciples seem unfazed by this. It's sort of like saying to a friend, uh, I've got this terrible diagnosis and I don't have very long to live. And your friend's saying, man, what's going to happen to your grill? It's a very nice Weber. I don't want that to go to waste. That's what this feels like. It's so insulting and cold and profane that they, that they would ask this. Who will be greatest? And so Jesus sets them straight. He flips their paradigm. And this is our first point. Uh, he calls them to the humility of a child. There's a little crowd here. And so Jesus picks up uh, a child who was nearby. Mark says he even picks him up in his arms, holds him, and he says, actually the greatest in my kingdom is the least. The greatest in my kingdom are those who are like this child. Uh, I used to live in a a small town in East Tennessee. Some of you have heard about this um, called Pigeon Forge and uh, it's the Branton of the East, I like to describe it. Um, So it's a tourist trap and while uh, I was living there, one such trap uh, was being built. Uh, and it was called Wonderworks. And there was a little bit of buzz around town uh, about this Wonderworks place. And while it was being built, my friends and I would drive by. And we would look at it, and, and we were very confused. We would think, 
what is this monstrosity? I mean, everything looks wrong with this building. Um, and what we eventually figured out is that Wonderworks uh, was being built upside down. That was their, their shtick. Uh, it was an upside down museum. So their website even says, when you enter the building, everything will be upside down. So in order to participate in the fun, you must be inverted. Likewise, the kingdom of God, right? Uh, everything is upside down. So in order to enter it, you must be inverted. That's why scripture talks about being strong when you're weak or, or winning when you're losing because that is the way that the kingdom works. It's why uh, Robert Capon uh, one of his books surveyed the Gospels and came up with what he calls his categories of losing. Uh, the lost, the least, the little, the last, and the dead. The lost, the least, the little, the last, and the dead. Those are the people who are sensitive to the Gospel message. Those are the people who win in the end because everything is upside down. And it just so happens that a number of these categories are embodied in children. We talk a lot about how children uh, are somewhat simple, about how they are uh, trusting, how they're innocent, and lots of other things. But I think the overarching quality that, uh, that Jesus is getting at here is humility. Humility is the keys to the kingdom of God. It is the number one mark of the inversion that we're talking about. And it's so important that without humility, uh, it's not that just that you won't be great in the kingdom of God. It's that you won't get in at all. That's how important humility is. Of course, when we say that, uh, when we say that children sort of embody this, we don't mean this in, in terms of repentance and a sort of spiritual understanding. It's more of an analogy than that. Um, I have seen my three-year-old boy, Weldon, trip over a tree root in front of a lot of people <laughs> and fall down hard and just jump back up, uh, unf completely unfazed. Uh, why is that? is because he doesn't have this sort of uh, conceited uh, understanding of who he is yet, that he's, that he's cool, that he's suave, that he doesn't do things like trip over tree roots, um, that he has it together. Uh, we, who are a little bit older, have a more advanced sense of self-perception, don't we? And uh, something like that would be very embarrassing for us. So become like a child, Jesus says, the little, that is a category of losing, a category of humility. And humility is one of those strange sort of indirect qualities, right? Um, if you claim to be humble, you are by definition not humble. And in some cases, the harder you try to be humble, the less humble you will actually be. So you can't just whip up humility in yourself because it's not in you. You don't really have the raw materials for it. Luther said that uh, the Christian needs an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. And humility is the same thing. Uh, you can't get it. You can only receive it by the Holy Spirit and by grace and through faith. But if Holy Spirit, grace, and faith are how you get it, then the question remains, where does it come from? I think the answer to that is that it comes from one place. It comes from, from Jesus himself, from God himself. I mean, who could be more humble than the God who gave up his throne for a manger? Sapphire uh, paved courts for a stable floor, as the song says. There is nothing more humble 
than God himself becoming like one of us. Giving up the perfection of heaven, not just to become like a child, but to become a a literal child for us. Just so he could grow up, fulfill the law in our place, and then die on the cross, also in our place, for our debt. So that he could save these sort of stumbling and bumbling disciples and stumbling and bumbling people like you and me. And because of that, Jesus is the only authorized dealer of humility, if you will. You can't get it without being connected to him. It's a little bit like Fight Club, if you remember that movie. The first rule of humility is that you don't talk about humility. Instead, you talk about Christ and you think about Christ and you let him search you and know you. You get humility only when you get Jesus. And if you think about it that way, then you will realize pretty quickly that there is no magic formula for humility. There is no secret password. There is only uh, the sort of trusty, uh, tried and true faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. That is the pipeline that the humility of Christ flows through. Repentance and faith. I think repentance and faith as a Christian is a little bit like uh, living in a house in which uh, you have a backyard that is uh, fruitless and uninviting. Nothing but weeds and briars and uh, uh, nothing grows there. It's ugly, dirt. That's repentance. But as a Christian, the front yard is lush is always in bloom, tulips, roses, peonies, verdant green grass, and that is faith, putting all of your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. And each one of these helps, uh, helps you appreciate the other. Imagine if you lived in a house like that. If you took 10 minutes with your coffee in the morning and looked at your backyard and then went and looked at the front, it would look even better and vice versa. And that's what the Christian life is like. When we look at our sin and repentance, Jesus looks even more loving, more merciful, more beautiful. And when we get a good look at him, on the flip side, our sin looks even uglier. So when Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about faith and repentance. But practically, what does that look like? I think uh, three things. First, Jesus shows you your sin. That's what he does with the disciples here. Remember how offensive the question is of who will be greater. Look how gently Jesus responds. One commentator says, uh, Jesus did not even scold them for their callousness, their insensibility with respect to his approaching agony, the non-lasting character of their grief, their quickness in turning the mind away from him to themselves and their selfishness. He rebuked them gently. The disciples were lusting after power in their hearts. We do the same. There's a television show that's popular right now that involves a very ruthless politician who says at one point, he says, money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. So how do you lust for power? What's your old stone building? When the disciples thought about the future of the kingdom, they forgot about the death of their friend and Lord, Jesus. Who uh, or what gives you spiritual amnesia 
like that? Is it when you feel slighted or disrespected by your boss? Is it when you discipline your kids? Is it when you dream about your retirement? Is it whenever you have a screen in front of you? Whatever chases God himself out of your mind is exactly what you need to repent of. It's also where, second thing, you should throw yourself on Jesus. That's what faith looks like. In football, we talk about uh, the Hail Mary. Um, and uh, if you have Aaron Rodgers as a quarterback, uh, you get to enjoy uh, Hail Marys. Uh, or if you're a Tennessee fan like me. And a Hail Mary is a last sort of desperate heave at the end of the game, right? When there's no other hope. And that's what faith looks like. It's never just casual. It's, it's God working a desperate heave in your heart so that, so that you throw yourself on Jesus. Remember, Mark tells us, uh, even as Jesus says this, he is literally holding a child in his arms. This child trusts Jesus in the same way that we should. If you remember the old hymn, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. That's really the best part of my day uh, as a parent, the best part of any parent's day. My daughter, um, who is almost a year now, gets tired enough or distracted enough or whatever it takes to just lay in my arms and not do anything. No more squirming. She just gives up. And Jesus says, become like children. Throw yourself on me. And when you do that, this third thing will happen. You will lose yourself in him. Not that you lose your personality, right? That, that would be the old um, uh, uh, Keswick theology of sort of letting go and letting God. C.S. Lewis said, humility isn't thinking of yourself less. Excuse me. C.S. Lewis said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Or Tim Keller wrote a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. There's freedom and rest when you throw yourself on Christ and forget yourself. But then Jesus switches gears. This is our second point. The next two are not as long as the first. Uh, verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And he goes on, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better uh, for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So what just happened? Uh, we were talking about children and <laughs> uh, nice things, and then uh, we started talking about drowning and severed limbs um, and, and hell itself. Well, Jesus went from positive to negative, from blessing to curse, from welcoming the little ones to causing them to sin. If you ever seen a parent sort of flip the switch when their child is in anger, uh, or when their child is in danger, uh, this sort of mama bear moment, and that's what's happening here. Uh, we can consider little ones, uh, to me, not just children, but uh, Christians uh, in broadly. Christians are God's little ones precisely because of the childlike humility that we just talked about, because God is our Father. 
So Jesus is reiterating here that God watches over his children and he holds those who prey on them accountable. So much so that they're liable to everlasting punishment. Sin is that serious. It requires drastic action, drastic self-discipline, drastic warnings from our Lord. What causes you to sin? Cut it off, pluck it out, throw it away. This is hyperbole from Jesus, but it's meant to wake us up. And another picture uh, of deep humility and repentance, kind of humility that's ready to give up the things that we hold most dear. Why? Because those who have humbled themselves before the Lord hate sin. Because sin is a clamoring for power. It's wanting to be in control. It's rebellion against God. And it is the reason that the humblest of all, Jesus Christ, had to die. Thus, uh, those who have been humbled by the gospel will do anything to avoid sin. But they don't go about this on their own. And that's our third point. Because the Lord watches over his little ones. How closely? So closely, verse 10, that he has mobilized the angels of heaven to go out from his presence. The picture is of a shepherd caring for his sheep. God himself going after those who are tempted, who are straying. Happened to see some actual uh, shepherding in a movie that I watched the other night, and I was struck by how uh, rough it was. So I think, you know, rod and staff. Uh, so the, the crook of the rod going around the sheep's neck and pulling him away uh, from danger into safety. Sometimes that's what it feels like to be in the firm hand of the living God. But. Ultimately, he is a gentle shepherd, and he rejoices when his people return. When they come home, he goes and gets them. The Lord gives help from heaven. He tracks down his people. But think about how this relates to all that we've talked about. First, God has called his people to childlike humility. Second, he understands that what makes us vulnerable in this world uh, and so he pulls back the curtain and shows us what happens to tempters. And third, he rejoices to reclaim us when we stray. And that's amazing, isn't it? That we were on our way to certain death in sin. And that God came and found us. The good shepherd always finds the wanderers. And by hook or by crook, as Wycliffe said, uh, he gets us. So if you humble yourself like a child, if you throw yourself on him, then you cannot help but be found. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, we thank you that you are a shepherd and we are your sheep. And we pray um, for more of that, more of an understanding uh, of the truth and beauty that is in you and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and we pray that you would make us humble like little children. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.